Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Democratic State Representative Trish Gunby made waves in 2019 when she captured a St. Louis County-based House seat that had previously been represented by Republicans. And now she's hoping for a similar result in Missouri's 2nd Congressional District, which is currently represented by Republican Congresswoman Ann Wagner. Gunby joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to break down the issues that could be top of mind for 2nd District voters and why she feels she can navigate difficult political terrain to victory. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio, not via Zoom, live in person, St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. And joining us today, she is a state representative representing part of St. Louis County and a candidate for Missouri's 2nd Congressional District, Trish Gunby. Welcome back to the show. Good to be here. Um, the last time you were on the show, you were talking about your landmark victory in the, was it the, the 99th. 99th district? I wanted to make sure I got the number right. And now you are running for Congress to represent people in St. Louis County, St. Charles County, Franklin County, and Warren County. Why did you decide to run for Congress instead of running for another term in the Missouri House? This time last year, I was reflecting back on the previous House session, but also what had happened in our country. January 6th uh, had happened a few months earlier. And I recognized that uh, the work I had been doing as a state House rep, I I kind of looked at what my U.S. rep, what I believe she was not doing, Ann Wagner. And I just thought, I'm going to take it up a notch. I have not felt represented in my congressional district. I know what it takes to represent people. I'm in a 50-50 House district and thought, um, this is my chance. So one of your former opponents, Ben Samuels, quit, and he implicitly told me that the reason that he quit was because he felt that Democrats could not win this district anymore. Why is he wrong? I was told that when I won my state house race. And so the way we take back the state, or at least make it more balanced, is uh, you talk to voters. And my campaign, we've been doing that for 10 months. I don't know that his campaign was doing that. And so we have a very robust campaign. We talk to voters, whatever, wherever you stand on the political spectrum, you want to be heard. And I think there are voters on both sides of the uh, political spectrum that have not been heard. And that's what my campaign provides folks, a voice. How do you plan to appeal to voters in Western St. Charles County, Franklin County, and Warren County, places with large pockets of deeply conservative voters? I think there are issues that 
all voters care about. You know, good schools, jobs. There are some landmark decisions coming down in terms of Roe v. Wade. I think across uh, all political spectrums, people believe, I believe people believe fundamentally in the right to choose your reproductive health uh, choice. That's between you and a doctor. The case of uh, rape and incest, no exceptions here in the, in the state of Missouri. I don't believe that most Missourians believe that's okay. So I think that's something we can all get on board with. I think recent uh, shootings with Uvalde specifically, uh, that is something that no matter uh, what you believe politically, we all agree that we need to reduce gun violence, and we've got to have conversations around that. And we're going to talk about those issues much more in depth in a minute, but Sarah has another question. Yeah. Why do you feel that you are a better candidate to run against Congresswoman Ann Wagner than your other Democratic opponent, Ray Reed? I've lived in the district for for almost 30 years, actually, and very active in the community, doing work in the community. I have... Uh, been asked to run, uh, decided to run, obviously. I think that my experience, but also just the campaign that we're running in terms of talking to voters, I don't know that he is doing that. And frankly, you have to have money to run against Ann Wagner. He did not file an FEC report, a fundraising report, last quarter. And so if you cannot raise money to go up against uh, the Republican, the twelve millions that she, twelve million dollars she spent last last election cycle, you just can't compete. You're not viable. And so, uh, I believe for many reasons um, along those lines. In addition to the fact, I just think I'm a better representative of the district in total. So let's dive into issues. You mentioned Roe v. Wade, and we're recording this on June eighth, twenty twenty two. The Supreme Court has not rendered any decision about the future of Roe v. Wade. But if that ruling does come down and Roe versus Wade is overturned, as you just mentioned, uh, abortions would be basically illegal in Missouri except for, quote unquote, medical emergencies. What would you do as a congresswoman to push back against this? Well, we need to codify it at the, at the federal level, certainly. I don't believe most Missourians and I don't believe most Americans believe that uh, you shouldn't be able to get an abortion if you if rape or incest has been committed. I mean, I think the idea, first of all, as a female, and the fact I have a daughter, uh, that that person could be traumatized and harmed in that way and be forced to carry a baby to term makes no sense to me as a human being. And so that is something I obviously would push back on. And, And furthermore, all of this, you know, it moves into fertility treatments. There are so many other things that are going to be on the table. We heard about birth control, um, IUDs, those sorts of things being on the table in the state house with some legislation that moved through. I don't. I want people to understand that I believe for radical Republicans, the Republican Party, this is an opening into going after birth control, going after fertility treatments, those sorts of things. They will not stop. And we have to recognize that and keep reproductive choice between a person and that person's health care provider and their family. Are there any restrictions on abortion that you would support? I, I really, I think that's between a health care provider and, and the individual. I, you know, I don't wade into health care decisions on any other issues. And I just think that that is something is between a health care provider and uh, the individual. How do you convince voters that truly believe that abortion is wrong to vote for you? And here's the reason I'm asking this question. I have I have run across many people, both who are elected officials and activists, who are 
amenable to many Democratic policies, but they see candidates who are in support of abortion rights as non-starters. They will vote against them no matter what. And I'm sure you're running into those types of voters while you're on the campaign trail. How do you convince them to vote for you? Some topics, if you're a one-issue voter, and in that, if that is your issue, I don't know that it's my job to convince you. Uh, we have so many months in which to campaign, and that is an issue. It is so personal, and to be honest, I understand why people may feel the way they do about that topic. I just do not agree with them. And so if, that, if you're a one-issue voter, I don't know that I can convince you. What I can tell you is, as a representative, there are so many other things that we do to represent you that does not involve abortion. And so I would just ask them to look at all the other things that we can do that I can bring to the table in terms of accountability, accessibility, many other things, and uh, not become a one-issue voter because our society is much more complex than that one issue. And I would hope that they would see that. How do you think voters in the 2nd District will respond to the Supreme Court decision? Wagner ran as unequivocally opposed to abortion rights in 2020, and that didn't seem to hurt her standing in the district. But with a possible overturn, do you think that's going to incentivize voters? I'm curious your response to how do you think voters will respond? I think it absolutely will. There was a I attended a rally out in O'Fallon. Primarily, everybody at that rally was uh, young and young people. And I think young women uh, young individuals are going to say, you know, enough. Our future is at stake here. I never thought as a 61-year-old woman I would have fewer rights than I did when I was a 12-year-old when, when Roe v. Wade went down. And that's where we're heading. And I don't think the younger generation will be on board with that at all. And I think you're going to see them come out in force. I want to move on to the topic of, of gun control. Another, so that's another issue that's on top of mind for folks right now. You mentioned that a little bit. If you make it to Congress, what policies around guns would you support? I'm a gun sense candidate, common sense gun sense candidate. And I, I want folks to know that at the state level, I put forth legislation around gun storage, things that I believe all of us would, would get on board with. So I'm very mindful of nonpartisan gun reduction violence legislation. Gun storage is one thing. Uh, red flag laws, certainly we don't want guns in the hands of people who have mental health issues and those challenges. Universal background checks, I heard that over and over at the doors. And, and finally, if we think that AR-15s and, and magazine clips, if that, if that is something that we cannot agree on, I just heard Matthew McConaughey talk about having to uh, work with funeral directors in order to recomposition a body of a child that you could not realize, you couldn't see whose child this was except by DNA. If we cannot think about that, that is what the damage and that kind of rifle has done. So those need to go away or at least be, you know, much more limited. I want to touch on the mental health part because that's something that like a lot of Republicans are trying to emphasize. But as a counterpoint, I have also seen a lot of disability activists say you can't just pass laws saying people with specific mental health diagnoses can't own guns because that wouldn't be not only a Second Amendment violation, that's an equal protection violation of the 14th Amendment. So can you can you kind of touch on that issue and also elaborate like what you would want to do in the mental health sphere? Well, we need more funding for mental health, certainly. I mean, that's state budgets, federal, you know, 
we, we struggle with that across the board. And mental health providers, even within schools, you know, psychologists, counselors, there are many school districts, rural school districts that do not have counselors on board to help kids with events like this. And so we need to provide funding around that. I think in terms of red flag laws with domestic abusers, I mean, those are individuals who have already been lifted. I mean, we know who those people are. And so you can't do this broad stroke of everybody with mental health. I mean, that I'm not suggesting that. Right. But there have been people who, in the system or within their families, within their workplace, we know that they're going through some sort of uh, trauma issue. Those are the people I'm, I'm so, thinking about. So are you in favor of red flag laws? Because I have heard even some Republicans support that. But the pushback against that is it could be abused to target people that are not uh, a threat to either themselves or others. So I want you to elaborate on that. No, I mean, I, I think that's something everybody would be on board with. And I, you know, the fact that the Senate left and went on break and is having these discussions on Zoom, the optics of that after that tragedy in Uvalde, if if your elected officials are not deciding to come together at, at in this moment, shame on them. Shame on them. So I think everybody could get on board with something like that, at least around domestic abusers. There's been a lot of focus on the NRA and whether they're at fault for a lack of move it on gun laws. But that seems to absolve voters from responsibility, since a lot of candidates run for state and local offices as unapologetically opposed to gun control and win. So isn't this a voter problem rather than an interest group problem? I think it's a I tell you what I would like to see. I would like to see law enforcement at the table. And and the thing that I don't understand when it comes to gun violence, we went through COVID, healthcare workers were at the table. We have education issues, teachers are at the table. We have a gun violence issue. Why is law enforcement not at the table? I have reached out to law enforcement and asked their opinions on this issue and have been told we have no opinion. Uh, we're not gonna wade into that. When you are having trouble recruiting candidates to go through your academy and serve people, that is an issue. You should be at the table. Your workforce is being directly impacted. And I would think you want to protect them as best you can. We all want good police protection. And I believe law enforcement needs to be at the table to help us have those conversations. Is trying to control who can have guns or what type of guns are around people fruitless since there are so many guns in circulation right now? I think we should have those conversations. However, I think the conversations we should be having now are around things that more Republicans and Democrats can get on board with. Universal background checks, the red flag logs, that sort of thing. The gun discussion is something down the road we can look at, but I don't think in the short term that that's going to be effective. So I would go work on things that we have more uh, agreement on across the aisle. Switching to another topic that's top of mind, inflation and also gas prices. And I think both of them are kind of linked. It's a major issue this year. And I'd like to hear your opinion about what you would do as a member of Congress to alleviate inflation and understanding that you alone, Trish Gundy, cannot, <laughs> cannot, cannot fix this problem by yourself. But you may be voting for things that could affect the issue. Right, right. I think this whole issue of gas prices and inflation, it's a very complex issue. It isn't a simple flip of the switch, prices change. If that were the case, you know, countries across the world are struggling with the same thing Americans do. So President Biden, your representative, can't 
do something and everything goes down. I think we are still experiencing the after effects of COVID and supply chain issues. When you buy a lot of things from uh, China and the Far East, and they are still having issues around COVID and production, we're not going to get those products. And so we're still you know, involved in, in all of that. It's still a global economy. The other thing I want to point out is we still have corporate conglomerates that are making money, that have profits. Their executives are making money. And so when those companies, oil companies, are paying their shareholders a lot of money, they we have to recognize, you know, they have the ability to lower prices. And the other thing, you know, I find interesting is when people say lower prices across the board, everything should go down. That is, I think that's socialism. <laughs> when government comes in and lowers everything and does all that, we're in a capitalistic society, and I believe that, you know, there is a free market there, but we have to be mindful that there are corporate corporations who are being rewarded for high prices, and they need to react to that. Would you have voted for the Build Back Better plan, a program that some Republicans and uh, Senator Joe Manchin argued would have exacerbated inflation? No, I would have voted for that. Why? As, well, one of the, the key components of that is paid family leave. And, and that one issue, you know, when you look at COVID, when you look at the workforce, that is the one thing, if you take aside people making a fair wage and making a living wage, child care is one of the biggest things that is an impediment to people going back to work. Quality child care, when your whole paycheck goes to, you know, put your kids in, in daycare or whatever, um, that is something we've got to work on because people aren't going to go back. They're going to stay at home. And so that's that's something I would have voted for. The other thing on the mind of many voters is high gas prices. Are there policies that you would pursue to mitigate this issue? Is this even something that Congress can deal with? Unless they have a direct link to OPEC, <laughs> I don't know what that I don't know what that looks like. That's something I would be interested in learning more about. Again, I think that it's something that's affecting countries worldwide. And so certainly we can all come together to put pressure on those countries that control, you know, fuel. But we can also look at ways to, you know, renewable energy, electric vehicles. I know many uh, companies are, are moving more quickly towards that. And so that's something I think we should be focusing on. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Trish Gunby. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois State Capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Trish Gunby. She is a Democrat running for Missouri's 2nd Congressional District seat. Now, now you mentioned COVID, and I want to talk a little bit about that because we are still in a pandemic. Uh, You're talking to somebody right now that just recovered from COVID and whose wife recovered from COVID and whose baby recovered from COVID. So needless to say, COVID is on my mind personally. So I'd be interested to hear what you would want to do as a congresswoman to continue to fight this pandemic effectively. The fact that COVID, that public health has been politicized is um, is shameful, frankly. And I, I have a husband who's a physician. My daughter's a nurse. She has been with COVID patients who have died in that, you know, in that process. And my husband has lost patients to COVID. So I'm very mindful of the effects. 
politicizing health care if this had been anything else and we had had any other administration in power in 2020, we would be much ahead of this than we are now. That response to COVID and our nation's response and all of us not getting on board to fight against this like other countries did, that is what is slowing us down. I'm wearing a mask again indoors, different places, because numbers are going up. And frankly, I don't want to get sick and I don't want to put, up, put others at risk. So it's something we're going to have to live with. We didn't address it properly back in 2020. We're still suffering the after effects and it's likely here to stay. Do you think that the Democratic support of things like vaccine mandates and mask mandates have backfired? Are they even credible <laughs> strategies anymore with Omicron being so contagious? I think we've all forgotten what life was like before we had vaccines. Watch one of the, uh, I just watched a, a thing about Ben Franklin and people dying of smallpox. Three in 10 individuals, you know, were dying of smallpox every day. We have forgotten because we've done such a good job vaccinating ourselves and staying healthy. We don't know what it's like when we lose that. And so the idea that we are drifting away from the public health, the good of the of the greater good, uh, that is concerning to me. And I think that we need to revisit our history so that we don't repeat it. So I don't want to sound like a spokesperson for Pfizer here, but I took Paxlovid after I contracted COVID. And even though it caused my mouth to taste like metal and caused some other side effects that were not great, it greatly reduced my symptoms. And I've heard from other people that taken it, including my high-risk sister-in-law, that it also really helped her recover from COVID. Yet I do not see a lot of people like the, I, obviously the administration is focusing on it, but I don't really see like an education campaign about how to obtain it. And I've heard people saying they, they're trying to get it, but they can't because it's so difficult. Obviously this is not something that you can do as a congressperson. This is more of an executive branch situation, but would you advocate making therapeutics like Paxlovid uh, or other therapeutics that are for immunocompromised people easier to get and more available if you're in Congress? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just um, just access to health care, period. I mean, I'm a proponent of Medicare for All. The fact that we as a nation have decided that GoFundMe accounts are the way to go when it comes to health care, th that is beyond me. And I can't even believe that we would not advocate that for everybody. We should all have access to quality health care and those uh, products, those medications that help us in that regard. Do you think that one of the reasons why people are upset over President Biden right now is that he ran on getting the pandemic under control, yet we have gone through wave after wave of COVID and it just doesn't seem to end? Like, do you think that that's one of the reasons like your party is not super popular right now? I would not say it's because of the COVID as much. I think for some, they just have moved on from it and don't really think about his role in that. I think here in Missouri, we reflect more on Governor Parson. You know, he's declared that COVID's over, apparently. And we aren't even, we aren't even taking stock of who's, who's dying from it anymore. And so we've checked out as a state. The problem, the president can say that. But if all the states decide to do different things, that's the problem. We aren't on board as a nation, unlike other countries. And so when you drive across the border into Illinois, it's a different response. You're not going to contain this or move forward through this virus if everybody isn't on board heading in the same direction. The president can, can voice that, can suggest that, but he can only do so much. 
We're going to move on to the topic of Ukraine. Do you support continuing to provide military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine? Absolutely. Why? Well, that is a region in our world, uh, very significant, certainly, in what they provide as in terms of food and, and energy through that, you know, through that Eastern European uh, Asian area. And so if we if Russia takes over that region, that compromises uh, the protection and the safety of, of Western nations in that whole hemisphere. I mean, that is a scary thought to think that that uh, is a possibility. Would you have voted for a $40 billion aid package to Ukraine that Joe Biden signed into law? Why or why not? Yes, for, for those reasons. I mean, we're, you know, we're all, we're part of NATO. We're part of uh, a conglomerate of countries that believes in democracy. And we have somebody who has invaded a country who has killed their citizens. And uh, we have, I mean, we can't allow that to happen. While I don't want to see our forces there, I think we should provide the aid so that those individuals who are there can fight back. What do you make of the argument that focusing on Ukraine detracts from domestic challenges? I know, for example, if you just look at our Missouri senators, one voted for the package, one did not. Uh, Senator Hawley cited that it's taking away from domestic issues. Um, What do you make of that argument? We live in a global economy. And so things that are happening in that part of the world are going to affect us, maybe not immediately, but down the road. And so, again, you know, I, hearing how much Ukraine provides to that portion of the world in terms of food, food and, and energy and, well, Russian, you know, oil, they, they provide, they have to go through that area. I mean, it, the impact over there, we will eventually feel it. And so uh, we still have to be mindful of that. We are, we're past the point of just, you know, thinking we can put up our own walls and do our own thing. That is not the world we live in. We have to be good to our neighbors and certainly our allies. Do you think that sanctioning Russia has been an effective strategy? Uh, some would argue it hasn't really changed their decision-making much. Well, we'll never know. <laughs> Maybe it could be worse than it already is. So I, I believe in the sanctions, and uh, I think you just can't let Putin, you know, go off the rails. You have to try and contain him somewhat. And so I'm glad that we've done something. Again, we'll never know if we had done nothing. I want to move on into a topic that I think is the most difficult topic for politicians to grapple, and that's race relations. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to know what you would do as a member of Congress to bridge societal and governmental divides between the government and African-Americans. This is something, this is one of the reasons I actually ended up running. I was not mindful, frankly, of race relations, certainly in our region, in, our, in the St. Louis area. And following Michael Brown's death, I tried to learn as much as I could around that issue. And what I realized is I knew virtually nothing. And what needs to happen, because I think by 2040, 2050, it w- we will not be a majority white country. And if we don't get a handle on that, proactively, not reactively, because mostly everything we do around race relations is, re- is reactive. It is not proactive. I am much more of a proactive person. So I've tried to educate myself. I was doing things in my church through my social justice ministry in that regard around racial justice. I have done things as a state representative. I've brought in colleagues of mine, Representative Rasheen Aldridge, in fact. I brought him in for a town hall to, to speak specifically on that issue. I've encouraged people to learn about how race has affected the St. Louis region. And when you talk about redlining and when you talk about the GI Bill 
and the idea that African Americans couldn't attend colleges, even though they got the money to go because they weren't allowed admittance. Things that, as a white person, I was totally unaware of. And part of that is because I was not taught that in school. And we need to do a better job of teaching our true history and understanding how what was taught and the systems that were in place, how they affected where we are now. We're, the world we are living in is exactly, it was set up to be the way it is right now by white people. And if we want to work cooperatively across all racial uh, barriers, burial line, lines, we have got to come together and understand our history first and then move forward in a way that benefits all. And I am, I'm always learning. I will never completely learn. I'm not, a, uh, you know, I'm not a person of color, but I'm an ally and I'm trying to learn and I think everybody needs to get on board and learn. And not to dissuade, you know, education is vitally important. Beyond an education basis, what are some policies, what are some things that you're maybe looking at to, to help kind of bridge that divide? Voting laws. <laughs> voting, voting, voting. I mean, we are seeing the attack on the Voting Rights Act. I would love to see the For the People Act pass, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Those kinds of uh, election laws that would uh, make it easier for everybody to vote. And there are ways that we can do that, making Election Day a federal holiday. But we've seen stuff in states, you know, take away ways to make it easier to vote. We've, we've, do, we've done that in Missouri. And when you see states heading in that direction, closing down the number of polling locations in certain communities, that's happened in other states. We didn't do that in Missouri. But, but when you see that happening, we've got to make it easier to vote. And when you're making it easier to vote, specifically, that is helping communities of color. And that's what we have to work on. Do you think that Congress can effectively deal with racism in America? Or is that something that needs to be honed in on a local or a state level? I think it begins in your community. I, first of all, it begins in your home, and it and it moves into uh, it, you know education, schools. I mean, we've had we've seen critical race theory suggest that that's being taught. It is not. However, what it raises is the issue of the teaching of history and how that makes people feel and how that moves you to understand. You, none of us should feel threatened about the history that we've experienced as a country. What it should make us do is look back on that history and say, we don't want to do that again. You know, I went to school at the University of Tulsa. I lived in Tulsa for 10 years. I never, ever heard about the massacre that happened about 100 years ago. Never heard about that. And neither did, I have family members down there now, and they never heard about it. I visited that, uh, the, the memorial and everything when I was there last. And so the fact that I never even knew about it, that is, that is, I mean, we can't do that. We cannot cover up our history. We have to make people aware of it. We have to learn from it. It's uncomfortable. If you are not experiencing some discomfort in this and you're feeling it, then you're just not doing your job <laughs> to be a good human being. I want to make this country and this region um, equitable for everybody. And I want everybody to feel good about being a Missourian and American. You mentioned the, the shooting death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, which I think was a key point in our nation's history to talk about the relationships between law enforcement and African-Americans. There has been a lot of discussion on a federal level about changing policy in that realm. Is there any specific things that you would want to 
advocate for as a member of Congress that would bridge the divide between law enforcement and black people? Again, I think law enforcement has to be at the table for these discussions. I think the historically or not, and this impacts, you know, I would imagine that they're wanting to be the best version of themselves. And in order to do that, you have to hear from the communities that you police in and, and what their feelings are about you and how you can be most effective. And so when I, I have a, a black friend and I made some comment about him coming and picking up the mail at my house when I was gone on vacation, and he said, I could never do that in your neighborhood. Somebody would call the police on me. That was the first time that ever occurred to me, and yet that is absolutely true, and that is, that's terrible. And so law enforcement has to be a part of that because uh, they just have to be, and, and African Americans, persons of color, we all have to be at the table. We have to experience that discomfort, but we have to hear those who are affected by this. I am not necessarily affected by it personally, but I am in, ter in terms of how my friends feel, how my colleagues feel. And so I'm willing to have those conversations. And I think as a, as a congressional leader, certainly as a state rep, I have led the way in that and I would continue to do so. Well, Representative, thank you so much for coming on our show and talking about the issues that matter in the second district and beyond. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our stories at stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Sarah, how could people follow you on Twitter? At Sarah K. Kellogg, two L's, two G's. And Representative, how could people follow you either on social media or your campaign website to learn more about your campaign? You can go to trishgunby.com and you can follow me on all the different platforms. You can also email the campaign directly. Sign up to volunteer. We will get you involved. Are you on TikTok, by the way? I have asked about doing a TikTok. We, there may be a Trish talk in the future. Oh, man. <laughs> I have opened up Pandora's box there. And <laughs> until next time, so long.